to Luke chapter 12. Find Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the New Testament. Luke chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 35 through 40 this morning. Uh, I didn't make it all the way, so we will come back to some of these next week. Uh, But we're going to begin with 35 through 40 this morning. Uh, We've been working our way through the words of Jesus that started at the very beginning of chapter 12. And we've been kind of taking our time as we go through it, sort of uh, savoring it. Uh, contemplating what he has to say, trying to avoid the superficiality that is so prevalent in most churches that might skim through a chapter like this and just kind of give you the warm, fuzzy highlights and, and really just paint a picture of a, a God who's just sitting up there in heaven who, who cares about us but not really making any demands of us, just up there somewhere available to us just in case we need him. But as we've gone over these verses in the last several months now, there have been some things that should be really of great encouragement to us, such as that we are more valuable to God than many sparrows whom he never forgets or leaves to themselves in verse 7. The fact that the, the Holy Spirit will come and he'll be our helper in time of trial for us if we are ever called to give an account before rulers and authorities in verse 12. And then also that the Father has gladly given us the kingdom at the cost of his own dear Son by quenching the severity of divine justice, I think as Thomas Watson put it, at the cross in verse 32. And therefore, we have nothing to worry about in this life. These are all things that are a great comfort and encouragement to us as believers and that we need to hear. But on the other hand, there has been some warnings and demands of us as disciples of Jesus Christ. We've been warned about hypocrisy and the uh, folly of living a duplicitous life in verses 1 through 3. We've been warned to fear the Lord rather than to have a fear of man because the Lord has the ultimate authority to judge and cast into hell in verses 4 and 5. We've been warned to be on our guard for every form of greed in verse 15. And we've been called to be rich in God and to have our everlasting treasure and our portion be in heaven and to place our hearts there rather than here in the temporal things of the earth, as verses 21 and 34 taught us. And these are all things that I think that all of us, including myself, have had to really kind of stop and evaluate in our lives and consider the weight of what the Lord is saying here. How many of us have felt like a hypocrite or felt greedy or didn't share the gospel because of what someone might think about us or questioned whether our hearts are really truly in heaven where Jesus is in the last month or maybe in the last week for that matter? Christ is looking for wholehearted, steadfast, devoted followers of Him. More is required of us than just simply acknowledging who He is. More is required of us than just simply knowing what He came to do. There's a requirement for us to pattern our lives and even exemplify the self-emptying, sacrificial, submissive, self-denying life that Christ lived for us. He's not looking for a self-indulgent people. He's not looking for the carnal or the worldly-minded. He's not looking for you just to add Him as an accessory or an addition to your life. He wants 
all of you. He wants you to lay your life down daily on the altar of obedience. He wants you to have the same passions that he's passionate for. He wants you to stand up for the truth, even if no one else in the room will not. He wants you to serve others to the point that it will cost you something like your money or your time or your physical exertion. He wants you to set your sights on heaven and not on the things of this earth. He wants you to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. And he wants us to bring every single aspect of our lives into submission to him. And so we want to take our time and we want to get the most complete and accurate picture of God with whom we have much to do. Because over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at some verses that most people would never consider or even quote as being from Jesus Christ. In fact, if I had to guess what the Jesus seminar would say about our text this week and the next, and that's the group of supposed scholars that would color code what they believed was actually the words of Jesus and what is not by assigning a color to that text. Red is Jesus' words, black is not, green is somewhere in between. He may have said it, may not. But I would happen to guess that they would say, Jesus never said any of this. They would probably assign most of all of this text that we have to cover the color black and say that Jesus would never say anything like what we will cover in our text. But the fact of the matter is that these are the words of Jesus Christ. And we know that when Jesus speaks, God speaks. John 8, 28, Jesus said, I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And no matter how difficult they seem for us to consider or to evaluate against our lives, we must do so nonetheless in order to bring everything in our lives into subjection to him, for he will not have us in any other way. And to be honest with you, the very simple three-worded question that I have to ask of you and myself this morning maybe for some, if not most of us, is really a difficult one to answer. Yet we have to ask it. And, that, and it might be a little intimidating if we think about it for any amount of time, any length of time. And that question is this. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready to meet your Savior? So let's read our verses together, and I want us to earnestly consider what God would have to say to us this morning. I want to start in verse 35 of Luke chapter 12, and I want to invite you to stand with me, if you're able to do so, for the reading of God's Word. God's inspired and inerrant Word says this, Be dressed in readiness, and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves from, or excuse me, blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, 
He would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too, be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Lord, help these words to live in us. Help us not just to hear what is being said, but help us to take what you have provided in your word and apply it diligently to our hearts. Reveal yourself to us through your word so that we may live less for ourselves and more for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In uh, just the past week, a joint survey between Legionnaire Ministries, which is the teaching ministry of Dr. R.C. Sproul, and Lifeway Research, which is the publishing arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, they released their findings regarding the state of theology within North America. And now many of you are familiar with this survey. I've quoted from its 2014 findings in the past. But they have now started to do them on a two-year cycle in order to sort of track trends regarding theological convictions and beliefs. This particular survey was of 3,000 Americans, and it was just completed in April of this year. But the survey is an attempt to sort of check the pulse of what Americans, and even those who identify as evangelicals in America, believe about God, sin, salvation, the Bible, the church, heaven, hell, all pretty basic stuff. And although the survey is really kind of discouraging to look at, the only encouraging result shows that those who attend church each week are far more likely to hold on to orthodox Christian convictions and they are less likely to have strayed into heresy. But overall, the the results are abysmal. And needless to say... Our nation's theological health shows that we are now in the ICU unit. For example, when given the statement, God is a perfect being and cannot make a mistake, only 50% could strongly agree with that statement. 10% weren't sure either way, and so that leaves about 40% of the people saying that God makes mistakes. When asked, does God accept the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam? 44% said yes, and they strongly agreed with that statement. Does modern science discredit the claims of Christianity was another question. 44% strongly agreed or agreed somewhat with that statement. Uh, When asked, does even the smallest sin deserve eternal damnation. A whopping 62% disagreed strongly with that statement, and overall, 81% disagreed or were not sure. Clearly, we do not understand the nature of God's holiness. Is sex before marriage a sin? 50% disagreed and strongly disagreed with that statement. Is abortion a sin? 51% disagreed or strongly disagreed with that statement. The Bible is 100% accurate in all that it teaches. Only 29% of those surveyed said yes. Heaven is a place where all people will ultimately reunite with their loved ones. 60% said, yep, they sure do. Worshiping alone or with your family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. 59% said 
yes. We don't know the holiness of God. We don't know the sinfulness of mankind. We don't know the sinfulness of sin itself. We don't know the scope and the limits of science. Science, just as an aside, can tell you what is, not necessarily what happened. It has to assume that, but it can never tell you what's right or wrong. We don't know the nature and the importance of Christ's church. We don't really know what happens when we die. And it's very clear that Americans want all the benefits that God has to offer as long as he stays out of it. But what really surprised me about this survey is that 41% of the people, they strongly agreed with the following statement. And another 18% agreed somewhat with this statement. So that's about 60% of the people either agreed or strongly agreed with this statement. And that statement said this, There will be a time when Jesus returns to judge all the people who have lived. Now that's a remarkable statement for the majority of the people to make. And that included unbelievers to agree with this statement, considering what they believe about the Bible's authority and the Bible's authenticity. Because clearly at some level, They've been taught that Jesus is coming back and that he's coming back as a judge. Now, more than likely, they've probably developed this intuition or this insight about the return of Christ from the cultures such as popular movies and books and those types of things. Everything but the Bible itself, because as I mentioned above, only 29% believe that it's 100% accurate in its teaching. And yet 60% of the people surveyed believed and affirmed that Jesus is coming again. That is an amazing affirmation from those who are doubtful of God's holiness, who are doubtful of God's justice, and they are doubtful of God's word, and yet they are more confident of the return of Jesus Christ. Now, What if they had actually read the Bible and they believed that what it says was true? What would they find about the return of Jesus Christ? Well, in the New Testament, there's about 260 chapters. Now, we take for, uh, understand that those chapter divisions were added in about the uh, 13th century. But nonetheless, of those 260 chapters that are in the New Testament... The return of Jesus Christ is mentioned no less than 318 times in those chapters. That would be about one time in every 25 verses. And there are only three books in the entire New Testament that don't mention anything about the return of Christ. And that is the book of Galatians, which was written to counter the Judaizing false teachers, and 2nd and 3rd John. And so the New Testament scriptures are literally filled with the declaration and the affirmation that Jesus will once more come again. It's a cardinal doctrine that Jesus will one day return visibly, bodily, gloriously, and imminently. Now, we don't have time to look at all 318 verses and references about the return of Christ But I want you to consider what Peter wrote when he wrote in 2 Peter 3, 3-7. He said, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. 
For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded by water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. Paul, he affirmed the return of Christ when he wrote to the believers at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 7. He said, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In second, or rather, Titus 2, verses 11 through 14, he said, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. James, he wrote in chapter five, or, uh, chapter 5, verses 7 through 9, he said, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early and the late rains. You too, be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. The writer of Hebrews affirmed it when he wrote in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 and 24, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Even the angels declared it about the future return of Jesus Christ when they said at his ascension in Acts chapter 1 verse 11, men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking in the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into the heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Again and again and again and again, the scriptures teach us that Jesus is indeed coming. There is a day fixed out there in time in which Jesus will make his glorious appearing in power and with authority and his majesty. All of history is culminating to the point in time fixed at a certain date, a future point that the imminent return of Jesus Christ is going to happen. And he's not coming to play games. He's not coming to be meek and mild. He's coming to conquer. He's coming to judge and he's coming to take what is rightfully his, like we read from Psalm 2 this morning. And he'll be coming like a bolt of lightning out of heaven, riding his white horse and his robe is dipped in blood. It's the blood of his enemies. And he will execute his perfect justice throughout the entire earth. And ladies and gentlemen, You do not want to go into that final day of judgment without making the terms of peace now. You do not want to delay in surrendering to him. You do not want to presume that you will just live your life and however you want, however you please. And then right before you die, you're just going to believe in Jesus Christ. Because we have to remember that there was two thieves on the cross on each side of Jesus Christ. And one of them didn't make it. It's not an easy thing as you think. 
He's offering you mercy today. He's offering you peace with him now. But they are his terms of peace and not yours. And so we have to ask the question that we just asked a few moments ago. Are you ready? Have you made peace with Jesus Christ? Are you ready today, right now, to meet your Savior? So then, this being the year 2016, the question becomes, well, why hasn't He come? I mean, that's a fair question to ask, isn't it? Surely if He said He's coming again, as you say the Scriptures have laid out some 318 times, why hasn't He done it already? Where in the world is He? The world's falling apart. People are dying all the time. Children are being aborted. Gay marriage is now legal in our country. Evil seems to run rampant every day. People are suffering all over this world. People are blaspheming God with their lives. Where in the world is Jesus? Why hasn't He come? The answer is very simple, really. The answer is that He is patiently And He is mercifully waiting for all those who will come unto repentance to Him in faith to do so. That's all. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, but He is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Ever since our Savior left this earth, God has been dealing with this world with mercy instead of coming back in judgment. For 2,000 plus years, Jesus has been patiently waiting and saying to sinners through the proclamation of the gospel, Come, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come home, come to me, follow me, I know the way home. Think about it. Think about it. How many of you would be in dire straits right now had Jesus actually came back 5, 10, 20, or even 30 years ago. Where would you be? How many of us would have been dead in our sins had He actually come back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, or the early 2000s? How many of us would still be alienated and cut off from the kingdom of God and cast into eternal hell if He came at that time? Does this not cause you to marvel at the long-suffering and the patience of our great God? Does this not cause you to stand in awe of a God who has every right, every justifiable reason to come and take vengeance on those that know Him not and don't obey His gospel? Would He not be just to pour out His wrath upon the nations who don't seek His wisdom or esteem His counsel? But He hasn't. Someday He will. And so the question again is, are you ready. And so we can answer the question as to why he hasn't returned with another one by saying he's not only demonstrated his patience and his mercy, but then there could be another reason that Jesus hasn't come and returned, and that is so he can fully test the faith of his beloved. How in the world would you know that you're a patient person if your patience was never tested? How would you know that you're a gracious person unless you extended grace to someone? How would you know that you're a generous person unless you gave generously? How would you know that you are faithful 
unless you had exercised your faith. Think about the fact that it was 40 years of wandering in the wilderness for the Israelites before they entered the promised land. It was 400 years of silence between the last prophet Malachi to speak in the Old Testament until John the Baptist to start speaking in the New. It was 4,000 years from the time that God promised to the woman to provide one who would crush Satan on his head in Genesis 3.15 until the birth of Christ. Did not all those things test the faith of God's people, and yet they all demonstrated the reality that they can have absolute confidence in God and thus make their faith real and secure? And yet, are we not in a more advantageous position than all of them, and that we have the entire written word of God that shows us again and again and again that our God is faithful and He will keep His promises. So we wait for the coming of our King. We exercise our faith in testing it so that it will produce endurance. And we let that endurance have its perfect result so that we may be perfect, complete, and lacking nothing, as James chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 tells us. So here we are in 2016, waiting on the Lord's return. So now the question becomes, how should we be ready for something like that? What should we be doing or what should we look like as we wait for our great and glorious King? Well, to illustrate that, Jesus used two parables to illustrate for us what we should look like in our text this morning. Now, remember, the word parable simply means to bring alongside for comparison. It's an earthly story to illustrate an eternal reality. And so the first one that we find is the parable of the waiting servants. Starting in verse 35, he begins by saying, Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. In the King James Version, the being dressed in readiness is translated, Let your loins be girded about. Now, what in the world does that mean, right? What does let your loins be girded about? Well, very simply, it means that men in those times used to wear long robes and they hung down to their ankles. And if they wanted to do some work or if they wanted to try to run, they had to kind of gather up that that skirt, right, or that robe and tuck it into their waistband so their legs wouldn't be restricted. Men didn't wear skirts. Back then, they wore robes, okay? But they would gather up their robes and they would tuck it into their belt so that they would be able to move fast and be able to work and run. In today's terms, we might say that we would roll up our sleeves to get to work. But it's the same word we find in 1 Peter 1.13, which says that we should prepare our minds for action. And so the gist of the statement is that we be prepared and be ready. We should be ready to take action. We shouldn't be slouching about, but we should be prepared to run. And that means that we lay aside every sin that so easily entangles us. That means that we cast off everything that hampers us from running the race in a way in which we may receive the prize. Very practically, It means that you are constantly looking for things to get out of your life that cause you to be distracted from God or to consume your thoughts and your passions more than Him. 
It could be the overabundance of your possessions. It could be the commitments to your business. It could be your zealous pursuit of your advancement of your career. It could be the meticulous care of your house and your home more than you care and nurture your soul. It could be doing anything and everything that your children desire to do instead of occasionally saying, no, we're not going to do that. Anything and everything in your life is up for grabs when it comes to serving Jesus Christ. Because he wants all of you, not just your leftovers. He wants you ready to run. And so that means you take everything in your life, everything that you do, everything that you're a part of, every endeavor that you are about to take on, and you ask yourself, does this help me run? Does this help me run the race? Does this help me serve Jesus Christ more or less? Does this help me with my time in the Lord or not? Does this hinder me from my being ready to run for Jesus Christ? That's what you ask yourself. And notice also in verse 35, it says to keep your lamps lit. In other words, what he's saying here is be ready at all times. Keep hoping, keep watching, keep praying, keep waiting, day or night, be prepared. And the imagery here is similar to the parable of the ten virgins found in Matthew 25. And five of them had enough oil in their lamps to last until the return of their master late into the night, and the other five did not. And the point of all this is that we should be prepared at all times and that whatever we do today, whatever we do right now, matters for all of eternity. We might say something today like, keep the home fires burning, right? It's another way to say it. It might be like uh, Tom Bodet from the Motel 6 commercials. We'll keep the light on for you, right? That's what this means. The point that Jesus is making is that we should be ready for his return at all times. So here lies the parable to illustrate this for us in verse 36. It says, be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. So Jesus begins by imagining a master, right? He's gone to celebrate a wedding. And in those days, a wedding party could last a lot longer than just an afternoon and an evening or just a couple hours and then a couple is gone. But a wedding could take days or even last as long as a week. And so for those of you who are fathers or would-be fathers, this is good news for you today, that you don't have to pay for a week-long celebration, right? That's a lot of cash. But the point that Jesus likens us to as servants who are to be waiting for our master's return. It reminded me of a steakhouse my brother-in-law and I went to in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota one time. It was back about 20 years ago, and we were eating on my father-in-law's dime, and we were working for him. We traveled for him in the book business. And we stopped at a restaurant called Austin's. And we had no idea what we were getting into. I think my my brother-in-law had jeans and a hillbilly t-shirt and big belt buckle and and all those types of things, and cowboy boots or whatever. Uh, But when we got into this place, it was in the bottom of this huge building, and it was kind of getting late at night, so we were kind of stopped in, and we thought we are going to check it out. And as you walked up to the door, there was a doorman there waiting to open the door for you. And so we get inside, and we get seated to the table, 
and you could just tell that this was an expensive restaurant. And there were waiters and servants standing everywhere, all around. One guy came, and every time you took a sip of your ice water, he was there with a pitcher to refill it. If you would take a bite of your bread and it would crumble and get some crumbs on the tablecloth, a guy with a little scraper would come by and scrape them up and take them away. The guy who took our order was somebody completely different. So whatever you needed, there was someone there immediately to come and take care of whatever you wanted or whatever you needed. I think it was like $75 a plate for this restaurant, so don't tell my father-in-law that. But the point is this that everyone there was ready and prepared to serve. Everyone had a role to fulfill and was ready to spring into action for you at a moment's notice. And that's what Jesus' point is here, and that you should be ready for His return. We should be looking heavenward for the expected return of our Lord. We shouldn't be living a life of passivity, but we should be living a life of activity that is singularly focused on the task of being obedient and ready for our master. And so the question remains, are you ready for the coming of Jesus Christ? If Jesus Christ were to show up today, would you be satisfied with the way and how you've been living for him? Or would you have regrets that you've been pursuing everything else in this world but Him? I want us to stop right there this morning and come back next week and look at the other parable. But we'll start back in verse 37 because there is an absolutely incredible statement made by Jesus Christ there that I don't want you to miss, but I'm just going to read it to you. Verse 37 said, Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Now that, ladies and gentlemen, is an amazing thing for us to consider next week, that our true happiness, our greatest joy, our lasting satisfaction will come when we are obedient to him and found by our master to be about his business. And in turn, he will be the one who comes and waits upon us. This is an astounding thing for us to consider, and I think it would be beneficial for us to look into that in a little bit more detail. But what are you expending yourself for? What is it that you are truly living for? Are you intoxicated with worldly pursuits? Are you living your life in a way that that you would not be ashamed at the second coming of Jesus Christ? Or are there some things that you need to get rid of or to cast off of your life that are hindering you? Maybe it's sin. Maybe it's possessions that you're holding on to too tightly. Maybe it's the pursuit of wealth. Maybe you're pursuing prestige. Beloved, it's time that you wake up and you be ready like a servant who is ready for his master. And so the question I leave you with is the question that I've asked you. Are you ready? Are you ready to meet Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. 
we just thank you for its encouragement and its nourishment to our souls, Lord. And if there be anything about us that we need to cast off, that we need to throw aside but to the wayside, that is hampering us from following you fully, Lord, please help us to do that, to get rid of that today. Lord, we want to be a people who are eagerly waiting for your return. Help us to be watchful. Help us to be ready. Help us to be found faithful and obedient to you. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.